So my favorite question used to be, why do you say that? And then you shut up. I mean, it's a close. You know, we all learned in sales that when you when you close someone, you shut up and you let silence do its work and um, and you listen to their answer. I've read just about every book on negotiation out there, um, including the Jim Camp books, uh, which are excellent. The Art of Persuasion. So excited about the Claims Game podcast today. It's with Steve Patrick of Level the Playing Field. And I thought we were going to get into a different conversation, but instead we ended up in about a 45-minute discussion just about the art of persuasion, how you can negotiate settlements and properly persuade the other side to make sure that you are getting what the client needs, what the homeowner needs, what that building owner needs to put their property back together again. It's a super interesting conversation with Steve that totally that took a complete left turn in a direction I didn't think it was going to go to, but it is valuable. One of my favorite uh, podcast episodes yet, and uh, I think you're going to like this one. So let's do it right here. Uh, Steve Patrick on the Claims Game Podcast in three, two, one. Welcome to the Claims Game Podcast with Vince Perry. Get all the tips you need from insurance claim advocates and professionals and grow your public adjusting career to the next level. And now the commercial claims advocate, Vince Perry. All right, we are here for take two because of course I didn't press the record button, but at least it was only for like five minutes, right? <laughs> Correct. As so, opposed to 30, 45 minutes into it. Right. Which I would have to admit I've done that before as well. Listen up, advocates, whether you're a public adjuster, contractor, or an attorney, if you have a client that has suffered any kind of catastrophic loss, whether that be by fire or storm or just any catastrophic loss that requires your client to have to move out and incur ALE and loss of use coverage, you need to think about looking at Black Diamond Services. This is an incredible idea for a service that I think is extremely valuable and I've actually personally used uh, for my clients myself. Basically, what they do is they provide all of the necessary money that needed as needed to be done for the homeowner uh, to go and move to another place, whether that be a hotel or another home or whatever it is. They basically bill through their insurance policies, loss of use coverage, and basically they provide financial assistance so that the insured never has to incur any out-of-pocket expenses. It's an amazing service. I love the people at Black Diamond Services, especially Millie Varela. If you just contact her and contact Black Diamond Services, I'm telling you, they're going to take care of your climate clients like you wouldn't believe. I personally have a client who suffered a fire damage and had to use their ALE coverage. And all we did was refer them to Black Diamond. Our clients did not have to come out of pocket a single penny. Black Diamond provided all of the financial um, uh, money and they provided the actual location for the homeowner to stay. Amazing service. Contact Black Diamond Services today so you could find out more information for yourself. But how I started last time was I'm very, very excited uh, to have Steve Patrick on the show. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. I really appreciate you inviting me. Oh, of course. It's uh, it's honestly, it's an honor. Okay. And I'll tell you why it's an honor, which we were talking about before. But one thing that I mentioned in the first take of it was, uh, you know, one of my favorite things about you, Steve, is every single time from the first time that I met you, and now every time I see you in person again, you are just that kind of person that no matter where I see you, no matter when I see you, you like emit this positive energy of just gratitude, of gratefulness, of, of just just overall, like life is life is good, and 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 I and I admire that. And the reason why I was getting to, like I said in the last five first five minutes unrecorded, was that you know there's too many things in life I feel that that we have to experience personally, professionally that are very very difficult. That you know we need to be grateful for for just what we got, the little things we got. And as an energy person myself, when I walk into a room, you could sort of feel if you're in a good place or not. When you meet somebody, you could feel if that's a good person or not. I mean, I get all that positive energy from you. And I just really appreciate that for every time I see you in person, man. Well, you're very kind. You know what my secret is? What? Well, first of all, one of the things is I learned the secret of gratitude, of thanksgiving, of being grateful for what you have, as opposed to looking at what you don't have. You'd be grateful for what you do have. It doesn't mean you don't have goals. Of course you do. But you're grateful for where you are and, and what you have. Um, so one of my secrets is that I believe I'm the most fortunate person you ever met. 
because I love doing what I do for a living. I get to do, like I said a minute ago, I can't remember the last time that I worked because I get to do this. And um, so how fortunate am I that I love doing what I do? I'm 61 years old and I have no no goal at all to retire. Why would I? I love doing what I do. So yeah, I, I tell people that all the time. I'm never going to retire. I mean, yeah. for that, I mean, for one thing, I'm just, I'm just too much of like, I just can't stop moving anyway. But yeah, I'm always trying to do passion projects. I'm always trying to do things that I'm like doing. So how, how would I ever retire? Yep. Yep. We're going to do is sit around the house all day. No, thanks. So I definitely want to get into what you do, right? Because that's why I have you on. But one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording was I looked at the American flag back there and I got a crazy flashback from when I first started this whole social media venture. And one of the things that I would recommend to anybody, if you want to start getting into social media and stuff like that, you need to make sure that you join as many uh, Facebook groups in your industry. That's how you're sort of, honestly, now in today's day and age, that's how you start to get your name out. And it's not something I talk about enough. And one of the first groups that I joined that was very, very active, very, very educational, and very, very helpful was Level the Playing Field. So before we get into sort of, I want to get into appraisals and umpire work and sort of what you do, uh, tell me about Level the Playing Field and how how that all came to be. You know, uh, I was a contractor for 10 years, and then I was a claims adjuster for about 10 years as well. And I did appraisals during that time, uh, about 2,000 of them, just under 2,000 of those um, in 24 years. I started out 28 years ago. And, um, and then about seven years ago, I read a book, Delay, Deny, Defend. Um, and yeah, you know the book. And, I, and it occurred to me that I was wasting my time. I had a claims adjuster licensing and training school. Uh, I did that concurrently along with running claims. When I wasn't out actively working some CAD event, I was running the school. And it occurred to me I was wasting my time that the insurance industry was changing and it no longer wanted the adjusters to do the right thing. They wanted them to do what they were told. And so I shifted and decided to go back to my roots and uh, start training contractors and public adjusters, plaintiff attorneys, how to deal with unreasonable people. I taught the exact same thing on the claim side because claims adjusters deal with unreasonable contractors and PAs and plaintiff attorneys, right? I mean, no one's you know above that, no industry. So I'm teaching the exact same thing. And so the last seven years, that's what I've been doing. Uh, about six years ago, someone suggested to t- uh, my business partner, Tony and I, that we get a Facebook group. And I didn't even know what it was. I said, what's that? <laughs> so uh, I wish I could remember who, who made the suggestion because I'd sure love to attribute it to them. Uh, and then I told Tony and he goes, what's that? So we figured with the North Texas Roofing Contractors Association here in Dallas that we might get, I told Tony, if we don't mess it up, we might get a hundred people. And we just went over 22,000 uh, <laughs> organically grown. I mean, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, it's not like, oh man, so I've got this strategy and I'm implementing the strategy and it's just all organic. And I guess people appreciate, you know, what they're learning on there. Our, our goal is to, um, to educate folks and, uh, and help all of us become better at our craft. And so that's what we're doing at Level the Playing Field. I tell people all the time, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> They're just like, you know exactly what you're doing. I'm like, look, this social media thing is still very new, right? And to be successful on social media, like you have, believe it or not, with that Facebook group, it's very uh, unchartered territory, right? So it's, uh, you're just sort of playing it as you go, you know? Um, And so you said you were a claims adjuster for how long? About 10 years. And you worked on the, on the carrier side. Correct. And you were an appraiser on the, and you were appraiser on the carrier side as well. Um, Yes, both. Uh, I've done uh, done probably about 80, no, 90, 10, probably 90% of my appraisals are consumer based because I get lots of referrals from contractors and uh, they knew even when I was working as a claims adjuster that I firmly believe in doing the right thing, either the damage is there or it's not. If it is, it needs to be accounted for and a reasonable method of repair and uh, in, indemnifying the insured. In fact, on my business card, I call myself an indemnification activist. I was on a plane reading an article about an activist and 
my thought is that most activists are nuts. But <laughs> anyway, aside from that, it occurred to me that I'm an activist. I'm an identification activist. And so that's what I put on my card. And so I've always believed uh, that the insured should be identified. Of course they should. And uh, that's becoming increasingly difficult in today's um, claims environment. Well, tell me about that. Tell me why. What are some of the what are some of the things? What are some of the tactics that you use to make sure that the insured is properly indemnified? Let's get into that. I think that could be very actually valuable. Our goal here is to make sure that we're providing as much valuable in as short amount of time with this podcast. So, what do you say as someone who is so some so much of an activist? I call myself an advocate. I mean, basically the go. same thing that we're trying to say. But what are some of the tips that you like to make sure that you use? And I know this is a broad question because every claim is different, but what are some of the things that come to mind that you think are very, very important to make sure that upon filing that claim and upon working that claim that the insured does indeed get indemnified? Well, I could cover documentation, but you do such an excellent job of that that there's no need for me to uh, belabor that point. Um, <clears throat> document the fire out of everything. I mean, just documentation is king. And um, so aside from that, the art of persuasion. The problem with most people when they're talking with adjusters is they're making a lot of statements versus asking questions. Questions are the second most powerful form of persuasion that exists. It's the art of persuasion. It's not putting on your boxing gloves and going a round or two with the adjuster. Um, it doesn't work. I mean, think about it. If you're being argumentative with the adjuster, if they're being argumentative to you, what are the chances they're going to persuade you if they're being argumentative? No, you're going to get defensive. Slim to none. So what makes us think that us being argumentative to them is going to persuade them? It's illogical. It, it doesn't happen. So that's the reason why we use the art of persuasion. So I started studying sales, and that's all sales is, is the art of persuasion, and uh, negotiation techniques 35 years ago. And I've been studying it ever since. And, um, you know, I boil it down to, a, you know, a number of different principles that I teach. And so when dealing with a claims adjuster, same thing when you're dealing with a prospective client, you should be asking lots of questions. In fact, it should be about a 90% to 10% ratio, 90% questions, 10% uh, statements, shouldn't it? If you make a statement, it can be refuted. How can, adjuster, how can an adjuster refute a question? So we're hardwired when someone asks a question that we do what? Answer it. That we answer it. So we ask questions. And if you question skillfully and listen carefully, their answer tells you what your next question should be. And one of the things that very few people are aware of is the person asking the questions is in control of the conversation because they're steering the conversation with their questions. Most people are unaware of that. So becoming very skilled and adept at asking questions allows you to control the conversation with the adjuster with the end in mind that all the damage be accounted for that a reasonable method of repair is agreed to an agreed scope and that the insured be indemnified. And if what happens is I'll bet you with most folks out there, it's 1090. They spend 90% of their time making statements and 10% of the time asking questions. And it's not that difficult to turn a statement into a question, is it? I mean, you can do it with just about any statement, can't you? In fact, I'm doing it right now, aren't I? It just takes practice, doesn't it? <laughs> that is awesome. And so, and so when, we're, when we're talking with adjusters, stop making statements. Ask questions. <clears throat> and ask questions that force them to rethink their position. And so one of my favorite questions, my favorite question of all time used to be, why do you say that? So let's say an adjuster says any amount of uh, nonsense. Let's say that on a residential side, they're saying that 
Starter and hip and ridge is included in waist. I mean, we hear that all the time. So my favorite question used to be, why do you say that? And then you shut up. I mean, it's a close. You know, we all learned in sales that when you, when you close someone, you shut up and you let silence do its work and, um, and you listen to their answer. So a couple of years ago, I was reading a book by Chris Voss oh, yeah. called Never Split the Difference. Um, he's a former lead negotiator with the FBI hostage negotiation team. I mean, if you international, if you're uh, in, an, in, in another country and you're taken hostage, his team would come in and get you out. So he wrote this book, Never Split the Difference. You, you're shaking your head. So I presume you've read it. Oh, I know. I've read it. Yes, I have. I've read it three times. <laughs> it's all highlighted up. Uh, I can't wait to go to his, his live uh, class. It's a week-long class. Anyway. Oh, really? I got to, where's yeah, that? What is that? About $10,000. And I know it'll be a tremendous value and I get a good return. Wow. So he has a chapter in there that says, never ask a why question, because people can interpret a why question as being, um, you know, somewhat confrontational. Right. So I changed my question from why do you say that to what makes you say that? See, it doesn't, it's not as confrontational, is it? So when the adjuster says um, any amount of nonsense, you know, this parapet wall doesn't need to be flashed, whatever they say. Okay. Then you ask the question, what makes you say that? And then you can tag it with help me understand. Man, it's like a, these statements, it's not what you say, but how you say it. These statements work like ninja word tricks. Help me understand, you know? And by the way, you actually want to understand their position because if it's just a tactic, they can tell. But if you seriously are trying to understand where they're coming from, then they can tell that as well. It, so back in the day, 35 years ago, uh, Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I can't recommend that book highly enough. One of his habits was seek first to understand and then be understood. In fact, Abraham Lincoln used to do this when he was a lawyer, is that he would spend a, a considerable amount of time trying to understand where the opposing attorney was coming from and understanding their position so that he could dismantle it and, and make it look like what it is. But he spent a considerable amount of time understanding where they were coming from. So we can do the exact same thing. Seek first to understand and then be understood. It's the same thing in sales. Um, and if you have a prospective client as a PA, uh, uh, as a contractor, plaintiff attorney, what you do is you do a differential diagnosis. Like a, like a doctor, all right? A doctor, when you go into a doctor's office, they don't make a bunch of statements. They ask you a bunch of questions. They start off with broad questions. And depending on your answer, they're narrow down the next question, the next question. And then next thing you know, they have a differential diagnosis. You have diverticulitis. Here's the solution to your problem, A, B, C, D, and E. And because they're the subject matter expert, the authority, you're going to do A through E if you want the solution to your problem. It's the exact same thing in sales. It's the exact same thing in the art of persuasion. And then you use the, the number one form of persuasion is emotional word pictures. You tell stories. Uh, facts tell, stories sell. And so you tell a brief story. You know what, um, Tim, the adjuster, Mrs. Jones here reminds me of a client, Mrs. Smith. And then you just tell a, a real quick 30 second um, story. And the purpose of the emotional word picture is for the adjuster to make an emotional connection to the story. And it reaches their heart, not their head, but their heart. That's the beauty of emotional word pictures. Telling stories is it circumvents the intellect and goes to the heart. And now you're tugging on their heartstrings. And the chances of them agreeing with you is greatly increased versus making a bunch of statements and being argumentative, which does not work. 
Wow, that's a lot to that's a lot to swallow there, uh, Steve. That was awesome. Not the direction I thought we were going to go with this podcast, but now I'm even more excited. At what point, though? At what point do you, you know, asking the questions, informing everything in a question? I love it and I get it. And at what point do you start to start telling that emotional word story, or at what point do you start to make some statements so that you could actually prove your point, or do you not ever get there? Do you continue to to ask questions? And at what point do you have to like realize, okay, I'm asking questions to a point where the guy's so annoyed where he's like, stop asking me so many damn questions, you know? Well, if they were to get that and say, well, I'm I'm sincerely wanting to understand your position, where you're coming from. I mean, isn't that what you want me to do is understand your position, where you're coming from? And then you shut up and hear what they have to say about it. Right. And so once you so one of the things that hardly anyone does is trying to understand the adjuster's position and where they're coming from. Right. So let's say that uh, you have a that you have a claim. It's a million dollar commercial property and they're not paying overhead and profit and you're trying to get overhead and profit paid, and you're asking a bunch of questions. All right. So let's role play real quick. So Steve, you know, uh, you know, we don't believe overhead and profit is owed. We don't pay for overhead and profit when it's just a roof. We're going to have to have uh, more trades. We're going to have to have at least three trades in order to include overhead and profit. Okay. What makes you say that? Help me understand. Uh, well, basically just uh, from, from our company guidelines and the way we pay our insurance claims, uh, we never include overhead and profit. As a former adjuster, I understand insurance company guidelines, but have you ever considered that your client, Mrs. Jones, never agreed to be bound by your internal policies and procedures, that the policy that you wrote, the contract of indemnification is what they agreed to. They never agreed to internal policies and procedures, have they? Well, no, but they did sign a contract with the, with, uh, they did sign our contract, which is the insurance policy. And basically uh, because of that, they're going to have to, 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 they're going to have to agree with what we're, what we're going to pay out. Well, help me understand. (laughs) Oh, this is good. All right. Um, well, uh, you know, we believe that, uh, because there's only one, uh, because there's only one uh, trade, that overhead and profit isn't isn't needed. And frankly, we only feel that the overhead and profit is going to be paid if there's any interior that needs to be included or any kind of you know drywall and so on and so forth. You mind if I ask a couple quick questions? Sure. All right. So, can we agree that general overhead, as opposed to specific overhead, is a company's cost of doing business? Their bills, their payroll their taxes and capital expenditures. It, well, all, all that stuff's already included in the line items in the estimate. <clears throat> so are you using Xactimate pricing? Yes. Are you aware that Xactimate in their white paper on overhead and profit specifically states that general contractors overhead and profit is excluded in every single line item? I'd be happy to send you a copy if you'd like. Yeah, you're going to have to... Send sure, me a I'll be happy to. But, uh, but that's why we've got. I'd be happy to do that. In so, the removal, in the removal of the item, it's already included. Overhead and profit is. Yes. Yeah, that's that's the white paper. Xactimate okay. specifically states that it's not, and the reason why Xactimate doesn't include general contractors' overhead and profit in the line item pricing is to give the adjuster the flexibility to either include it or exclude it, and which is what you're doing is you're excluding it. Otherwise, how, how would there be another place to put 10% and 10% overhead and profit if it was included already in the line item? Good point. I'll pay it. So let me ask you this. <clears throat> so there's four more questions you can ask on overhead and profit that will back them in subtly, you know, uh, not being abrasive, back them into a corner and realize that their position is untenable. All right. So here's the four questions. Can you tell me, uh, Tim, the adjuster, Vince, the adjuster, let me ask you, um, can you tell me one company that doesn't pass along their overhead costs built into their price for their products and services? I mean, one company in the entire United States that does not do that. That does not include general overhead when they do a bill back their price, their cost of doing business. Um, no, but I'd have to search for one. Okay. Can you tell me one company that doesn't include a profit 
built into their price so that they're at least sustainable and, pref- and preferably to grow their company. I mean, it, one company in the entire United States, can you tell me one? Not a nonprofit, I'm talking about a business. Right, no. Isn't it true that your insurance company that you work for passes along its general overhead costs, the cost of doing business, built into the insurance premium that Mrs. Jones pays and includes a very healthy profit. Isn't that true? The insurance, my, the insurance company that I work for? Yes. Oh, yeah. Of course they do. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. What makes contracting different than every other business in the entire United States that passes along these costs built into their price? What makes contracting any different than them? I don't like them. Ah, so it's a personal vendetta then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you notice that everything that I said was in the form of a question. Yeah. I'm not making any statements they can refute. I'm asking questions to get feedback. And depending on the feedback from the adjuster, then that, that determines where I go with my next question. And I'm in control of the conversation because I'm the one asking the questions. Did you ever felt, feel like during that uh, transaction, you were in control of the conversation? No, I was terrified of how I was going to answer it. <laughs> On the contrary, I didn't know. But no, to answer your question, no. Uh, but also, I was just like, oh boy, here we go. I got to like, you know. See, it, it didn't occur to you though that this other guy on the other end of the phone or standing in front of you is wrangling control of the conversation from you because it doesn't occur to people that the person asking the questions is in control of the conversation. In fact, have you ever heard of that before today? The asking the questions that the person asking the questions is in control is in control. Yeah. I mean, I heard it from Chris Voss, but okay. yeah. 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 Yep. Well, look at, I'm the interviewer, right? I'm technically in control of this conversation because I'm the one asking the questions. Same thing. Is that true? Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if you guys have not read Chris Voss's book, on negotiation called Never Split the Difference. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, I've read just about every book on negotiation out there, um, including the Jim Camp books, uh, which are excellent, but they pale in comparison to Never Split the Difference. It is phenomenal. In fact, you can look up Chris Voss, V-O-S-S, on uh, YouTube, and you can watch a bunch of his teaching on these uh, techniques. They are phenomenal, and they work. Yeah. I mean, the guy was a freaking hostage negotiator, a hostage negotiator, man. I mean, he was through, he went through some intense negotiations where he had to get people down from wanting millions or billions of dollars to zero. By the way, it's really quite impressive. It's really interesting. If you've read the book or when you do, you'll notice that Chris tells a story and then teaches a principle, tells a story, teaches a principle, just like in the book, um, how to win friends and influence people or Zig Ziglar's book on sales. Uh, they do the exact same thing. Tell a story, teach a principle. <laughs> Storytelling is the number one form of persuasion. I mentioned this a moment ago that exists emotional word pictures. And Chris uses emotional word pictures by telling the story. I mean, riveting stories, exciting stories about how he's um, been able to get hostages out of a situation using these techniques, and then he would teach the principle. Brilliant, isn't it? It's the number one form of persuasion that exists, emotional word pictures, because you're making a connection with the listener. That's the reason why it works so well. It literally circumvents the intellect and goes straight to their heart. Now, you said you've been studying the art of persuasion for 35 years. Correct. But Chris Voss's book has only been out for about 10 or so. Yep. So what were some of the te- techniques you learned even before that? Was a lot of the similar techniques was reading Chris Voss's book, just like an aha moment. Like I knew it. That's exactly what I thought. And just, and then a little bit more in depth or were there anything, was there anything different that you learned before that? Cause one of the things that I liked in negotiation is trying to also find a, uh, find a common, a, not a common ground, but like a common reason for what you're trying to actually come to an agreement. So one thing that I always try to remind the insurance uh, adjuster is that we have a common goal here. All right. We're supposed to have a common goal and that's to bring the insured 
to indemnify the insured. And I, and I have to sort of remind them of that, that although you're all gung-ho about this insurance estimate that you're looking at, that's read, that's basically written by your guidelines and based on the insurance company, let, let, might I remind you that we do have a common interest here, which is the actual insured, and that's to indemnify the insured. That I learned from not never split the difference, but getting to yes. Yep. <clears throat> I like getting to yes, but getting to no is more powerful. Tell me about no. That was going to be actually, you know, I forgot that was going to be, I want, to, I want you to explain that. Why does Chris Voss say that you would prefer to hear no than to hear yes? Like he literally says, no, you don't want to hear yes. You want to hear no. Please explain. Correct. Because if you ask yes, yes questions, it sounds like you're trying to manipulate the conversation and the listener into you're strong arming, arming them into a yes. You know, I heard years ago, you know, the vacuum cleaning sales approach at your front door is that they would ask broad yes questions. A yes, 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 yes. And 20 yeses turn into one big yes. And you buy the vacuum cleaner and the people feel manipulated. And so if you ask no questions, they don't feel manipulated. They don't feel like they're trying to strong arm them because they feel like they're in control of the conversation because they're saying no. For example, if I call you up, Vince, and I say, did I call you at a good time? And yes. your answer would be yes. I don't ask that question. I say, did I call you at a bad time? Oh. Do you see how it's the same thing? Basically, I'm asking if you're available, but instead of asking a yes question, it's a no answer. And you say, no, you didn't kiss me at a bad time. I mean, something as simple as that, no one ever picks up on it, right? In fact, here's a book that I just read. Go for no. About getting no's. Read this book here. It's, that book is, so uh, for, for, those, no. for those listening, it's, authors, for those listening it's called Go for No. I can't recommend it highly enough. I mean, I'm constantly... I mean, I just read this uh, just yesterday, uh, over the last two days. I just, you know, I don't have all day to read books. Um, and what did so, you learn? Uh, but, what did you learn from Go for No? Uh, that you, that to get to a yes, you have to go through a bunch of no's. And so one of the, to, one of the techniques that I use to like, let's say, get a contract signed when you're trying to explain the insurance claims process to a potential a potential client, a potential insured, and they don't want to use a public adjuster because why am I going to pay you a percentage and blah, 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 blah. You know, one of the things that I like to tell them, well, are you aware that there are a specific amount of duties after a loss and post-loss obligations that you have to abide by before presenting a claim to the insurance company? Oh, no. Are you aware that there are certain time limits that the insurance company have to abide by in order to pay your claim? No. You know, and then I keep going with that. And then it's eventually like, well, this is what we do. You know, this is what we know how to do. And this is why, you know, we'd be very beneficial in, represent, in representing you. Excellent. That's exact. It, you notice that you're asking the entire interaction, you're asking questions. Right. And that's the reason why it works. In fact, if, if you're aware of a story where someone didn't fulfill their post-loss obligations, then you can throw that story in. Let me tell you, this reminds me of a client of mine, Mrs. Smith, she didn't fulfill her post-loss obligations. The insurance company denied her claim as a result of it. She filed uh, a lawsuit for bad faith and for breach of contract, and she lost because she had breached the contract first by failing. Can you imagine how she must have felt when she realized she lost her entire claim because she didn't fulfill these obligations? She didn't know she had. Now, see, I'm asking questions. When I'm, when I'm recounting the story and I'm helping the listener have a heart connection to Mrs. Smith and what occurred to her and they go, well, I don't want that to happen to me. And so you use the two forms of persuasion, asking questions and telling an emotional word picture. By the way, this reminds me of, of a client of mine, Mrs. Smith. Let me tell you her story. And then, then you tell the story. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I always tell any public adjuster, you know, you're always trying to sort of craft a story. And I always tell people I'm not trying not a make believe story, 
a real life story of who's living in this house, the situation that they're dealing with, uh, who is sick in the house, who's unable to move around the house. And, and, I, and I try to humanize it to the insurance adjuster so that it's not just a claim number that they're looking at, but an actual human being that they need to indemnify to make sure that they're able to, to continue on their normal life. And so you can tell a real quick emotional story about, you know, when I was visiting with our mutual client, Mrs. Jones, she mentioned to me, oh, and then you tell the story of what she mentioned and how it had an effect on you because it was an emotional story. And you recount that story to the adjuster. Now, all of a sudden, now you're dealing with a human being with emotions and feelings as opposed to a claims number because you used an emotional word picture so that the adjuster can make a heart connection with Mrs. Jones and then care more about her as opposed to just having it be a cold claim number. So what are you doing now, Steve, to take these skills that you have learned in the art of persuasion to help others and and teach them as well? Well, this is good stuff. Every place that I'm asked to go and speak, I teach on these things. And um, also, I do a lot of private training uh, with different companies. I'll go in and teach uh, an entire team at an office. Um, I do that with contractors. I do that with public adjusters. Um, I was in Florida just last month and with a large group of public adjusters, there were like 20 PAs in the room. And, um, and so teaching them the exact same things I teach contractors. And so, um, I do a two day class. The first day is on, I'm not trying to pitch it. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Please. The first day is on uh, how to deal with unreasonable claims adjusters. And that's, the entire thing is about the art of persuasion. And the second day is, again, the art of persuasion, um, time management, how to become twice as productive. It's not that difficult to be twice as productive, the average person out there, because the average person out there is lazy. I'm lazy. I just don't allow myself the luxury of being lazy. Uh, all of us are lazy to some degree or another, right? And yeah. so how to become twice as productive. It's not actually not that difficult. And also goal setting. Um, everyone goes, oh, yeah, 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 goal setting. I understand goal setting. Yeah, but have you done it? Have you actually invested the 20 hours it takes to make a comprehensive um, plan for your life? I mean, it's only your life we're talking about here. Um, right? And it's about 20 hours to do that. So I'm going to tell on myself. Uh, I learned the goal setting process when I was 25 years old and I didn't do it till I was 55. So 30 years intervened from the time that I learned about this till I actually did it. So what does that tell you about how important goal setting was to me? Wasn't. Apparently it wasn't. All right. So the vast majority, 97% of the people out there never do this. The top 3% are the also happen to be the top three performers and the ones who are the most successful and the other 97% are not. And if you take about 20 hours to learn how to do it properly, then guess what? It'll transform your life. In fact, it's funny. I was looking back um, over about five years ago, I had a goal. It's about four years ago, actually. I had a goal to have 2,000 people on level the playing field, Right. It's really funny. So you go back and look at some of your goals that you had a few years ago, and you realize that you just crushed that goal. And talk about encouraging and enabling because you realize, oh, man, I'm really good at this goal setting thing. And so then you start shooting for the stars. I mean, I'm talking about like, so this talks about failing. So I know a bill, actually know three billionaires. I mean, how many people know billionaires? It's, it's pretty remarkable. And so one of the billionaires, billionaires that I know has two grown children. And every time he sees them, because they're grown, right? He doesn't see them every day. He goes, so tell me about your latest failure. And so he's not, he's not creating failures. He's creating children that will be successful. So you want to fail often and you want to fail big. 
because you learn from your failures and you're moving forward. The only person who doesn't fail is the one who doesn't try things. And that's what he's encouraging his children to do is to try new innovative things and fail big and fail often. In, in fact, uh, fail exponentially. So not only that you're failing, but everyone around you is failing forward. You're failing forward. And you. Um, so Thomas Edison they asked him, what's it feel like to fail thousands of times trying to create the light bulb that would stay on, you know, <laughs> prolonged period of time? And he looked at him curiously and he goes, well, I didn't see it as failing. I just figured out a couple thousand ways it wouldn't work. <laughs> and so the interesting part of the story is after failing about a thousand times, he brought in a team of inventors to help him invent the light bulb so that he was his company, General Electric, by the way, was created. His company, GE, right? Failed exponentially. So now instead of just him finding hundreds and maybe a thousand ways it wouldn't work, he had an entire team working on it. And guess what we have as a result of Thomas Edison? Electricity. Lights in the house and electricity, right? And so... Um, yeah. So let's be like Thomas Edison. You're not discouraged when you fail because it doesn't make you a failure. In fact, the chances are you're going to be a far greater success because you're constantly trying things and you're trying and and you're failing big. So that's the reason why when I teach the uh, the goal setting is I teach people to shoot for the stars. Think about people who are. Um, they're exceptional people, extraordinary people, extraordinary. Uh, I'll bet you they spend little to no time in their comfort zone. They're constantly shooting for the stars. I mean, think of uh, Michael Jordan. Do you think he had mediocre goals? Of course not. Do you think he tried? He had goals that were, you know, attainable? No, he had goals that were stratospheric that pushed him to be the very best. And, and, and so guess what? He's a legend now, isn't he? As they, a call it, they call it a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. What is right. your BHAG, Steve Patrick? My BHAG, so you, should, you ought to be able to ask a person that at 3 a.m. and they'll tell you right there at their sleep. Mine is simple, is to positively impact 100,000 people's lives for time and for eternity. I like it. So if I positively impact you in some way, Vince, and then you go on to positively impact someone because of my impact on you, guess what? That, that's accounted to me because it's a passport. And so that's my goal, to positively impact 100,000 people's lives. I love it. And you if know, I one- do that, see, that's a big, hairy, audacious goal. It's my major definite purpose. It's another way of saying the same thing. And if I accomplish that, then guess what? My life has been a resounding success. Yeah, um, I would do that. I would put those as two separate things, though, because if you were to ask me what my big, hairy, audacious goal was, it would, I mean, it's going to be to be the number one public adjusting firm in the country and the number one influencer in the country as well. Uh, but if you were to ask me what what my purpose is, my purpose is to is to um, be a blessing to all those that I meet, to really be a mentor and to help others and to be that go to person for all of my friends and all of my families that they can come to whenever they need anything at all. So I don't know if that's a big, hairy, audacious goal, but it's like two separate things. But in regards to goal setting, um, I was showing you this book. This is my journal that I'm showing right now, one go. of my journals. And this it's a three-month goal setting journal. And I've got a whole stack of ones that I've already filled out. And I knew that a couple of them, I hadn't completely finished it. So instead of buying a whole new pack, I went to an old one which is, this is the old one. And I opened it up and I was just like, uh, you know, let me just finish it from here. And then I saw, as I was like looking through it, I don't know if it's still here, but for some reason, one of the pages is ripped out, but it's really funny because it says, um, uh, I will achieve, what was it? It says it somewhere here. Oh man, I can't find it. But basically what my goal was, was to, to, to create a YouTube channel and and, and, and put a book online that I can sell to make money. Uh, what's it called? To make money passive, to, to make yeah, passive, passive income, income. basically. And yeah, yeah. you and I are talking. There's this book oh. right here. 
And it's just like my, what I tell people all the time is that it's very important to write the goals down, write them down and keep them. But even if for whatever reason you write it down and you put it somewhere and you throw it away and you lose it, I think just writing these goals down is very, very important. Have you read the one thing? No, you have not. No, write it down right now. You need to read the one thing. And what the one thing is, is basically, actually, I do have another big, hairy, audacious goal, and that's to basically travel full time with my family. But how am I going to get to my big one, my big one thing, which is travel full time with my family? And if that's like my ultimate 10, 20 year goal, let's say it's a 20 year goal, let's say it's a 10 year goal. What do I have to do in five years to get to my 10 year goal? What do I have to do in one year to get to my five year goal? What do I have to do this month to get to my one year goal? What do I have to do this week to get to my, my one month goal? What do I have to do today to get to my week goal? What do I have to do right now to get to my end of the day goal? Yes, and you pull it down to activities. Write it in backwards, yep. This is what I do on a daily basis. And if I do this activity on a daily basis, let's say knock doors for a residential or a commercial roofer, right? So if I knock 100 doors a day, I'm going to get 98 no's and two yeses to an inspection, let's say. Right? So that's two inspections. You get two inspections, you get one roof by knocking 100 doors a day. So you boil it down from let's say your your income goal is $250,000 a year, let's say, all right? So how many clients do I have to have to make 250K? And so you figure that out. And then so how many presentations, let's say I'm closing 20%. So I have to do five presentations to get one sale. How many door knocks do I have to do to get five presentations? And you extrapolate that out to a daily activity goal. And as long as you're hitting those daily activity goals, guess what? Then you'll hit your 250K. In I, fact, I, go ahead. In fact, it's a mistake to focus on the $250,000. You don't want to be money focused. That's, that's a huge trap to people. A huge mistake. Rather, you boil it down to activity goals. And so your focus is on doing whatever daily activity it requires to obtain the goal of being able to, to you know, have a, a sailboat and travel the world or whatever the case may be. Sure, sure. So like I have, a, I have my whole week all laid out and what I need to do and how many times I need to do it. So I need to exercise six days a week. I need, uh, I, I track what I eat. Um, also, I need to write a certain amount of words in the book that I'm currently writing right now every single day. And every day at the end of the day, I go in and I check it off. But like in order just to give somebody an example, like to get to the point where I was with so like to the point where I am with social media, you know, my weekly goals were different back then where it was, I had to shoot, I had to shoot three videos a week. I had to comment on level the playing field at least, at least two times a week, like stuff like that. That's how you sort of do it. And, and I, the daily activities thing is a huge thing for me. I need to make sure. And at the end of the day, I need to check off exactly what I did for that day. And then at the end of the week, I total it up and I see if I did everything 100%, 80%, 60%, whatever it is. And the beauty about this journal here in particular is called the B best self journal journal best self journal the beauty be about it yeah in the big every day you wake up and you plan out your whole day what are the three things the three most important things you need to accomplish and what are three things you're grateful for then at the end of the day you check off everything that you did if you're keeping track with your with your week you write what was your big win for the day what could you have improved upon for that day and then my favorite part is again what are the three things that you're grateful for because to bring this conversation full circle right? At the end of the day, it's all about, you cannot forget the gratitude principle. The gratitude principle is so important, making sure that no matter with all the crazy hustle bustle in life, no matter how many books we need to read, no matter how many times we need to exercise, no matter how many millions we need to make, no matter how many doors we need to knock, we always need to remember to take a step back and remember to be grateful about what we have right now, because it's very easy especially for a hustler mentality when you're out there getting after it all the time and you're moving and shaking and all it's so easy to 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 forget about the little things and the most important things that you have in your life you know it's it's funny so yesterday morning my son dominic who's just started a roofing business uh he had a flat tire in his car and he was like frustrated by it and i said hold on a second i said do you realize that this is just an inconvenience you realize that how much worse some people have it than a flat tire. And he goes, man, that is so right. I have a, I have a nice car. <laughs> I happen to be inconvenienced by a flat, but you know, 
a nice house, nice car, nice. I mean, he, it occurred to him that he was, that his focus has gotten off of gratitude and onto the inconvenience. And uh, so sometimes it's helpful if someone could, you know, bring us back to reality and we say, oh yeah, yeah. You know what? This is just an inconvenience and, uh, and nothing more than that. So, yep. Well, do you, have you read about the stoic philosophy? What is it? Stoicism. Uh, I know what it is, but I haven't read about it now. Oh, man. So what's I mean, that is the way. Well, I mean, it's just stoicism. I mean, if you ever want to read probably one of the most amazing books ever written uh, here and there, it's almost like uh, it's not even like a story or anything. It's just like he just wrote all these passages. And they're just amazing things about life and the way to live life. And one of the most important things when it comes to stoicism is courage, wisdom. Oh, and there's two more, two more pillars that I can't remember off the top of my head. But basically what stoicism is all about is you are in control of all of your thoughts. You are in control of all of your emotions. So if somebody, if somebody says something offensive to you, how you react to that person saying it is in your control. It's your choice whether you want to get mad about it or whether you want to be happy about it or whatever it is. So, you know, one thing for me is when bad things happen, yes, remember to be grateful. But I'm also the kind of person where when amazing things happen, amazing things happen, it's like, okay, cool. We keep going. Consider that you shouldn't even name it bad or good. How about well, yeah. things happen to you? I mean, you've heard the sure. story about the, the father who his, uh, his son found a horse and he goes, and the neighbor says, well, how fortunate it is that you found a horse. And he goes, well, I don't know if it's good or bad. And then the son fell off the horse and broke his leg. And then the neighbor says, well, how unfortunate it was, you know, this is bad that he fell off and broke his leg. He goes, I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. And then the army comes and wants to, you know, conscript his son to go fight in a war, but he has a broken leg. And so they're not able to take him to war. And the neighbor says, well, wow, how good it is that your son doesn't have to go to war. And the father says, well, I don't know if it's good or if it's bad. And the story goes on and on back and forth like that. And the point of the story is that maybe we shouldn't be real busy. um, Worrying. This set of circumstances is good and this set of circumstances is bad. It just is. And so where do we go from here? It's It's like when someone says, you make me so mad. How can someone make you mad? Exactly. Choice is one of the things I teach about. Choice is one of the most wonderful gifts that the Lord has given us. I mean, we can choose to react or respond. That's it. I can react to a person or a given set of circumstances, or I can respond. Those two very, you know, it's like medication. So if you're having a reaction to medication, that's, that's maybe not the best thing. Versus you're responding to the medication. So, yep. Woo. Well, Steve, we are going to have to, uh, to postpone the rest of this conversation for another about the, day. Um, about the appraisal. Oh, my God. <laughs> appraisal. We didn't even talk about it. We'll do a for second one on appraisal. For those people still listening, the goal of this conversation was to be about appraisals at umpire. And that did not. That took a total left turn. But. Um, we, I mean, that was awesome. I mean, just the fact that you educated us about negotiation and the art of persuasion, I think this is going to be a very successful podcast episode that people are going to get a lot out of. So Steve, um, before we let you go, is there anything that you'd like to add and please let the audience know where they can find you and how they can get in contact with you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Here's two free takeaways. If you're not already a member of Level the Playing Field, it's our Facebook group. You can join for free. Uh, If you would text the word forum, F-O-R-U-M, text the word forum to the following phone number, 214-496-5182, you can join our Facebook group for free. Um, If you don't have my, which is called Level the Playing Field. Steve, repeat that for me because we had a little glitch there. So uh, I, 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 everything was good when I asked you the question, like, you know, last thing that you want to add and how people can find you. 
You bet. So um, our Facebook group, Level the Playing Field, you can text the word forum, F-O-R-U-M, to the following phone number. Just like if you're texting someone, uh, the, the number is 214-496-5182. Again, text the word forum, F-O-R-U-M, to 214-496-5182 to join our Facebook group. You can text the word ebook to that same phone number and download my book, Level the Playing Field. Uh, no dash, no hyphen, just E-B-O-O-K to that same phone number. And you can download my book, Level the Playing Field for free as well. So there's two free takeaways for you guys. You're going to have to repeat it again. I don't know what happened. I'm sorry, Steve. Yeah. So the phone number is 214-496-5182. And text the word forum, F-O-R-U-M, to join the Facebook group. And text the word ebook, no dash or hyphen, just E-B-O-O-K, to download my book, Level the Playing Field, from that same phone number. Awesome. Steve, thank you so much for coming on. That was a very pleasant yeah. conversation. I learned a lot. And it's, it's just what I said in the beginning of the, of, the, of the podcast. I mean, you're just like the best, man. <laughs> you're very kind. Thank you. So I'll see you on July 1st. Excellent. I will. Dave, Dave and Buster's. Dallas, guys, be there or be square, as they say. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot.